0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty in this new series that we're involved with called Escaping Futility. And last week, I said we would start to look at how to build our lives, whether it's our lives in the home, at school, at work, or as citizens, whether you're ever going to be in politics or not, so that on that great day of final judgment, when all things are exposed and subject to the fire of refinement and distillation, we won't find that what we've done has been burned up even if we are saved personally from the wrath of God, which concept we find in the third chapter of First Corinthians. But last week when I said we would begin to look at how to bill, I didn't expect a draft opinion from the United States Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito reversing Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey to be linked to the press. But, but don't, don't despair. I'm not going to get sidetracked because what I want to do today is look at what happened and at the opinion, if we have time to do both, to see what we can learn from it in the context of what we need to be doing if we're going to build rightly in the days ahead. As I said last week, I think, if you don't appreciate the soil, the social environment, the legal, the cultural environment in which you want to build, you won't build rightly. I think I mentioned the Leaning Tower of Pisa at one point. That if you don't get the soil conditions right, you won't know how to build with what kind of materials and you'll wind up leaning to the left for the right. Now, I do, I want to add here about what I'm covering today and even in the coming weeks. It's not just relevant to those interested in politics, government, and law. Though I want to put as much as possible uh, of the discussions that we have on this podcast in that context, it's really relevant to all of us. So so let me encourage you, share today's episode with your friends who don't care about politics, government, and law because They have to live in the same world as those of us who do care. And Alito's opinion and the reaction to it discloses some things that we just need to understand. It's an opportunity for us to gain some insight into the social climate in which we live. The prevailing worldview that, that like a mighty gale, we're going to have to build in the face of. And if your friend says, but I'm a homemaker, I'm a blue collar worker, I'm whatever it is, I'm never going to hold office, you need to help them understand that what I'll be covering, they need to know to wisely nurture and train up their children or help their adult children train up their grandchildren. I'm doing today's podcast as much for my adult daughter and her husband as they raise up their three children as I'm doing it for anyone and to be honest, I don't see my daughter or my son-in-law ever being in politics. So whatever your life context, to be one of the sons of Issachar who understood their times and knew what to do, I think you need to hear what's gonna be said today or maybe next week as we look at the reaction to what took place this week with the leaked opinion. Uh, So first, what I want to do today is look at the leak itself and the response to it from the political left. And I hope to have time to touch on the response to it from the political right, and from Christians as a subset of, I'll presume, the political right. And then if there's time, I want to look at the opinion itself, because it's very revealing. There should be joy that Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey may soon be reversed, but the opinion shows just how shallow, even disingenuous, the thinking is on the court from a Christian biblical perspective. I'm telling you, my friends, we have a long way to go, assuming we know where we're going. And and we'll turn back to that when we've gotten everything we can out of, of what just transpired this week. It's just too much of a learning opportunity to pass over lightly. So uh, with that long introduction, I'm now going to focus on the leak. And what I read from some of the voices on the political left, with respect to the leaker, there were people who hailed him or her as a hero, and that's confounded some people. I just did a radio show today with another person who said why would a budding lawyer or a lawyer, if the clerk's already licensed, risk the whole legal career in front of him or her? I mean, it it would truly probably result in their not being admitted to the bar or being disbarred or suspended from the bar, and uh, then what kind of law firm would ever hire you uh, if you if you can't actually really practice? So. So, there's puzzlement about the leaker itself and how he could be seen as, uh, or she, as a hero. And then I want to look at comments directed to the Supreme Court as an institution. Comments like, burn it down. And um, saw this one, it's it's irredeemable. Now those two things, the appreciation for the leaker and the burn down the court, are tied together. And here's the shocker. Some of that response has actually been fueled or I might say allowed to flourish because of the direction of theology within Protestantism over the last hundred years. And that's what I was talking about last week when I was referring to Abraham Kuyper telling the students at Princeton Seminary that Protestantism wanders hither and thither as if in the wilderness making no progress at all. Now let's take a look at this question of the leaker. Why would the leaker be a hero? And why being a hero would be connected to the calls to burn down the court? claiming it's irredeemable. Well, we have to appreciate the worldview that now prevails, at least within our institutions of influence, and, and it has to do, really, with the issue of history. Well, I won't delve into this in too great a detail today, I, I don't, I don't want to lose you or, or get too sidetracked, but there was a gentleman by the name of Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant wrote a book that tried to respond to empiricism, the idea that everything is scientifically measured and, and evaluated, and, and David Hume had kind of pricked a bubble in that by saying, well, actually, we just assume that certain things Have cause and effect relationships because of the correspondence between certain things. So the example was, we strike the cue ball and it moves, and we assume that the cause of the cue ball's movement is the pool stick. But he said, how do we really know? How can we empirically exclude all possibility that right in a nanosecond before the cue stick hit the ball? something else intervened to move it. So we, we can't really say what the cause is of the cue ball moving. Now, that does not eliminate the concept of cause because he's still saying something moved it. it. It didn't just sit there, but he's saying we can't really know. Well, you can see if your world's based on empiricism and you can't really know what caused something, well, the whole chain of cause and effect goes down the tube, and so Kant writes and says, well, we're going to break the world into this, um, and I'll, I'll use a, a very vernacular term, a spiritual world and the natural world. He used the words noumenal and phenomenological world. And, and the idea was that, well, we do know cause and effect in the natural world, but we just can't assume that what we can know in the natural realm actually happens in the spiritual realm, and and so we really can't know anything in that spiritual realm. Now, if you've read Francis Schaeffer, you've heard him refer to that as the upper story uh, view of the world. So things like um, values, uh, spiritual matters, they all go in this upper story or in this spiritual realm, and. And we can't really know them, but yes, we, we can respond to David Hume by saying the laws of cause and effect and, and our observance of things and our usual sense perceptions, they, they can help us understand the natural world. Well, that's, that's a dualism, you can see, right right there. And, and man is not dualistic. We are body and soul. We are um, matter and we are spirit. Okay, But in any event, that's what Kant said. Now, the difficulty then became in trying to figure out, well, where do we go from there? And so the concept had developed that we just constantly have this thesis and antithesis, that things go this way, and then something else goes this way, and they, they crash, and, and out of that uh, comes uh, something synergistic, something, something new, and Hegel takes that and he tries to put it in some kind of Christian concept that's really just pantheism that says, well, the reality is history is moving somewhere and, and history is the revelation of God. In other words, God is, I hate to say sort of becoming God, but he's, he's revealing himself as we go along. And, and so as you can see, this is the philosophy of an evolutionary view of time and history. Darwin came along much later and all he did was provide a, a, a mechanism, I guess you could say, for how human beings might have evolved. But he was just sort of the cherry on the cake of the philosophy that had already been developing and was now sweeping across the, the continent of Europe is now in America. a Hegelian view of history. That God is marching through history. Now, with this evolutionary idea, we we don't really know where it is that we're going, but wherever we're going must be where we need to go, right? That's sort of evolution, that we're having these uh, random mutations and it's making us into what we need to be. And the same is now applied to history. And so there's there's almost a, what you might call a divinization of history, that history becomes God. Not that, that history is God's story, and God is driving and moving history to his ends and to his purposes, but that, that history, almost, is really God, and it's divinized. So everything becomes a matter of progress and of being do you remember I talked a few weeks ago about the article uh, involving Del Noche and Michael Hamby that we've lost all sense of being and all we have left is becoming so we don't know that what we are today is what we need to be tomorrow and what we are today may not be what we were yesterday and that of course feeds the whole transgender issue which is the context in which I brought up this idea that there is no being according to our nature as human beings. There's no sense of being in terms of of history uh, too, I guess you could say. And so everything's just this great chain of moving along and progressing and almost a sense of inevitability. Now that's why you find people willing to burn down institutions To call institutions at some point irredeemable. To call those who help destroy and burn down those institutions heroes because they are bringing about the next evolution of things, the next march towards progress. That's why you see people claiming, as Bill Gates did, that this would set us back 50 years. This would be going backwards, going back in time, as if they even know where it is we're going. Anyway, that's why this person is a hero. That's why in the French revolutions, you see, when they turned away from God, what did they do? They, they burned down the institutions. They destroyed the monarchy, and they, they repudiated the church. That's why we have a loathing for history today. Why do we want to get rid of our history? Because history doesn't matter. It doesn't tell us anything about who we are or have anything to do with where we're actually going, as if we're going anywhere. And, and that then, see, becomes a real problem when, when Protestants and Christians don't know where they're going either. That's what was taking place in the reaction to the leaking of this opinion. Now the Christian needs to appreciate that if we start the Bible with the first sentence, in the beginning God, and Him creating, we now have a basis for understanding history, progress, and telos, or ending, where we're going. Now we're going to be looking at that in the next couple of weeks because if we build without understanding the direction in which God's taking things and the purposes for which he's taking things, then we will not build rightly. It, we will be, as, as, as was said to the Apostle Paul, why are you kicking against the pricks? Stop, Paul. You're kicking against the pricks. And, and so as Christians have ignored the doctrine of creation, and, and to be honest, ignored really the development of a doctrine of God himself as relates to creation, understanding and appreciating the doctrine of the Trinity, well, we have become less historical-minded. We've become disconnected from history. We've become disconnected from who we were. In fact that's the pride of some denominations or or groups of Christians is that we're going to build Christianity from the ground up. We're going to rebuild the church. We're going to rebuild things from the beginning ourselves from the ground up. We don't care about the creeds. We don't care about the history of the church. We're going to just take the data of the Bible in a very scientific matter and reconstruct what we think Christianity is, and who God is, and what it's doing, and where it's going, and and then we also say that well, because that's true, we're we're really supposed to be spiritual beings, so we're not going to mire ourselves up in the things of this life, of history, of creation, of law and politics and government and arts, um, and, and and do you see how? How we then, by vacating the context of creation, how we turn ourselves into just spiritual beings who who long only for the salvation of souls and going to heaven where we'll be spiritual beings, fosters the notion that's taking place now. Why should they care about these institutions? Why should they not want to burn them down when we don't see their importance either, other than perhaps, you know, just making sure that the gasoline prices aren't too high. And and we got the food we want on the grocery shelves. There's truly a sense in which as, as Christians spiritualized, Christianity abandoned their calling as image bearers to the creation of culture, forgot Genesis 1 and the dominion mandate, we vacated history too. We vacated these areas. And why do they see them as important either? In fact, under their view of history, in their view of the way things are proceeding, we need to burn down the past. And now the chickens that that we've hatched are coming home to roost, and we're seeing them played out. It's, it's a scary thing for Christians to realize, and I can't say this definitively, but as best I can tell, pretty much every time the, the Hebrews, the Jews, got in trouble, it was the wicked doing things, God sent the wicked, to demonstrate to them, to help them understand what it was they were doing wrong. Because the judgment mirrors the heresy and exposes it. So when we see institutions being deemed irredeemable, needing to be burned down, uh, leakers destroying institutions as heroes, then that should tell us something about ourselves. Now one other little thing I will say here about institutions being irredeemable. Part of what's happened in Christianity is we focused on the redemption of individuals and we do not think of institutions as being redeemable. Now that just came up in the last legislative session when I was talking to a leader in the General Assembly about passing the Marital Contract Recording Act and his statement on the record to uh, lawyer Jeff Schaefer was the court is just political and they don't do anything that's not political anymore and call me jaded but that's just what they are and so until enough people in society want to be pro-marriage again it just it's pointless what was he saying? exactly the same thing these liberals were saying the institution of the court is irredeemable so his view was don't try to do anything And, of course, not to try to do anything is to allow the other side to burn it down. Do you see how Christians have contributed to the problems that we face because of their theology? Oh, my, my friends, my friends, my friends. Well, I think I've covered all I'm going to cover today, and it's gone on long enough. But next week I do want to come back and look at the opinion itself because what the court says and does not say is very revealing and will help us understand our times that we might build rightly. And I hope you'll join me next week as we continue our effort to escape futility. Thank you for being with me today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.